audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Do you know who got this right in the story? Leah. She's the only one who gets it. She starts praying out of her desperation because it's not working. Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today we continue his message about letting go of anxiety and attaching our souls to God, not pursuits that will fade. He's preaching from the Old Testament story of Jacob about his love for Rachel and the experience of his other wife, her sister, Leah. The Bible says God's ultimate objective for you is that he would have supremacy in your life, that you would have other passions, and we do, it's okay. But if he wants our primary passion to be him, that's the best life you could possibly live. This is Today with Jeff Vines and the conclusion of Letting Go of Anxiety. Jacob is a deceiver and a con artist. He gets that from his mom. Remember what she did? But neither one of them, they're not a match for Uncle Laban. Because Uncle Laban takes one look at Jacob and sees how desperate he is and how he reveals his hand way too early. I'll work seven years for Rachel. And then his evil mind goes to work because he has an ugly daughter he's trying to unload. (laughs) Now, don't be mad at me. I'm just telling you the Bible story. (laughs) So he looks at Jacob and thinks, man, Jacob, you're not thinking properly. Clearly, you're you're way over the top. You'll do anything to get Rachel. So Laban, Uncle Laban, comes up with a plan. If you notice in the narrative, he he never agrees with Jacob on the seven years. He never says, uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's enter into contract. Let's shake hands. Let it be written. Let it be done. Seven years, you get Rachel. No, what he says is in verse nine. He says, well, it is better that I give her to you than give her to another man. That's all he says. That is a salesman statement. It's oblique. It's positive, but there's no objective promise anywhere in it. But he knows that Jacob is so desperate. Jacob will hear what he wants to hear. So the seven years are up. Jacob comes and says, okay, Uncle Laban, I worked seven years, give me my wife. He actually says, give me your daughter that I can sleep with her. Now, you don't have to be or don't have to possess a lot of historical, archaeological, or even philosophical knowledge to know what happens next if you know the story. It's wedding day. The bride will be heavily veiled the entire day. And the wedding ceremony will start at her house, Uncle Laban's house, and will go to... Jacob's house and the family and then into the village where all the family can celebrate. They'll blow the shofar, the trumpet, and there'll be dancing and there'll be a lot of eating and there will be a lot of alcohol all day long. Lots of wine, lots of drinking. And then at nighttime, Jacob and Leah or Jacob and Rachel will go into a tent after all the ceremonies and they will consummate the marriage and it'll be official. Okay. The problem is Jacob's been drinking all day (laughs) and he's been kept far enough away from the bride and there's no electricity in these days. So you can't turn the light on and they go into the tent to consummate the marriage and Jacob's had too much to drink. And he says, Oh, Rachel. And in the morning he wakes up to find out it was Leah. And now he's married to Leah. The marriage has been consummated. And he's so livid with rage that he goes to Uncle Laban and he says, why did you, you knew for what and for whom I was working. Why did you deceive me this way? And Uncle Laban's response is classic in verse 26. 
Well, around here, it's not the custom to put the younger before the older. Ouch. He must have heard what happened with Isaac. And as soon as Jacob uses the word deceived, I'm sure it was like an arrow going through his conscience and exploding because that's exactly the word Isaac used when he said, why did you deceive me? And then for Uncle Laban to throw into the word around here, it's not the custom of the older to be preferred before the younger. What happens? Or the younger before the older, it dawns on him. Suddenly, Laban is doing to me exactly what I did to my dad. My dad reached out in the dark thinking it was Esau, but it was me. Jacob, I reached out in the dark thinking it was Rachel, but it was Leah. <laughs> and then he just goes away. There's no discussion. No, no, I said seven, none of that. He knows he's been had. And then the writer introduces us to Leah. What about Leah? The Bible says in verse 17, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and very beautiful. What does weak eyes mean? Does it mean that Rachel could see a long way? <laughs> but Leah could only see a short distance. Doesn't mean that she was like cross-eyed or something. She couldn't see. I don't know. I do actually know what it means. It's, a, it's kind of a metaphor. When you have weak eyes in the Old Testament, it means that you are not confident. You have a low self-esteem. When people look at you, you look away. Okay? Now, what would it be like being in Leah's shoes growing up in the shadow of a stunningly beautiful sister and you know you're the ugly duckling, and so much so that your father's trying to get rid of you by attaching you to some man. Now, here's what's really interesting about this narrative. How does that happen? How does he convince Leah to dress up and pretend she's Rachel? What girl would do that? And then at night, how does he get her into the tent? You know, I just imagine the conversation, you know. Leah, sweetheart, you're ugly. <laughs> I know it's harsh, but let's just get it out there. It's the truth. And if you ever hope, now remember, we're in a culture where having babies, having male sons is the ultimate. So, sweetheart, if you don't get in that tent, you're going to die an old maid and you're never going to have any kids. You're going to have to get in that tent. Now, what's, what's really interesting here is nowhere in the narrative do you find Leah saying, no way, I don't want to go into the tent. No, no, no. No. And here's why. Leah is doing the same thing with Jacob that Jacob is doing with Rachel. This is her opportunity to get married and have kids in a culture where that means everything. You're nobody if you don't have kids. She too is looking for a savior. Now, <laughs> she does something after the marriage is consummated. She's married. Jacob's the husband. And if you know the story, she, he's going to work seven more years. And she starts doing something that I know we would never do in our time and culture. She starts having babies in order to keep a man. <laughs> Aren't you glad we've come so far? <laughs> We'd never do that. And she starts having sons. So she's blessed. And every day she sees the man for whom she most longs in the arms of the woman in whose shadow she's lived all her life. And as she, as she starts having these sons, she gives them a name that will get Jacob's attention. She tries to speak to him through, to him through the kids. So first she has Reuben, which means to see. Now maybe my husband will see me. Maybe I'll be visible to him and he won't look straight through me. That doesn't work, so she has Simeon, which means to hear. Now maybe my husband will hear my cries of love or for love. That doesn't work. She has Levi, which means to attach to. Now, finally, my husband will love me and attach himself to me. I've given him three sons for crying out loud. Maybe he will attach himself to me in the way that a husband should to his wife. 
If anybody's in hell in this narrative, oh, it's Leah. Because she's got a pseudo-savior in Jacob and no man can live up to that. This is Today with Jeff Vines. We're hearing Pastor Jeff's message on letting go of anxiety and how we can help ourselves by putting God first, ahead of our other passions. Now, I want you to stay with me. Let's put the narrative of the story over here and I want you to hear my heart and go through this with me. Man, this is every single one of us. Every single, me, the people back there, all of us. There's There's a little story that I heard first from Ravi Zacharias that I tell often. And I usually tell it, and then I try to make a way to fit into the message, <laughs> you know? That's what pastors do. That's a good story, you gotta tell it. It doesn't really fit, but I'll twist it and turn it. <laughs> it's a story where the bodybuilder is out of work and he goes to the local zoo and they hire him to dress up like a gorilla because the gorilla has fallen ill and the school children are come and they don't wanna disappoint the school children from seeing the gorilla. He fills out the uniform, everything's fine. The enclosure where the gorilla is is far enough away from the gate where the children stand and watch and they think he's a real gorilla and they throw him peanuts and bananas and he eats them and he likes peanuts and bananas. But then he gets a bit rambunctious and he swings over the oak tree branch over the wall into the lion's den. And so now we have a talking gorilla and the kids are scared and he's yelling, help, 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 help. And he keeps yelling, help, 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 help. And finally, after about 10 minutes, the lion looks at him and says, dude, if you don't shut up, we're both going to lose our job. (laughs) My favorite story. (laughs) But this is us, man. This is, this is you. Every single person in this room, we do the same thing. You spend your life trying to be somebody you were never meant to be because you got the approval of somebody. You wear masks pretending to be somebody you don't have the real potential of ever being. And you attach yourself to things that you think are going to deliver that never do. You put your faith in something that your soul knows is fragile at best. And then you get to be my age. And somewhere around my age, you realize that there's the disintegration of your soul. And you take off the mask and you cry out for help to your pastor, to your friends, or to whoever else it is, only to realize everybody's playing the same game you are. You, you, you can't trick your soul. You can't. No matter how much health or wealth or money or freedom or liberty, it doesn't matter. You may feel good in the moment, but your soul knows that the things you've attached her to are, are fragile and frail. And if it knows, it will disintegrate and die. Slowly but surely. And you'll come to the age of 40 and 50 and 60 and realize you've wasted your life. In every life, in every aspect of your life, there will always be a ground note running of cosmic disappointment. Look, we've said it before, what's the death rate in California? And the answer is, it's one per person. <laughs> and pseudo-saviors will never, will never heal you. So I don't care, if you're, if, you're not even, if you're not a Christian, you're just here visiting, this still applies to you, man. If you've attached yourself to anything that's gonna fade or, or die, you're, you, you can convince yourself it's all okay and block it out. But eventually your soul knows that for which it's living is going to fade and it will start to disintegrate. 
Nobody said this better than C.S. Lewis. Most people, he said, if they ever really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they want something that this world can never give them. These are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning will ever satisfy. There's always something that we've grasped at, that first moment of longing that just fades away with reality. The thing we thought we were going to get in the new experience always evades us. And so what do we do? When we first come to Jesus, here's what we do. We're hoping that Jesus will help us get the things we really think will save us. Think about the irony. We hope to get Jesus on our side so that he will help us get the things we really worship, the things we think will save us, our idols. So if I got Jesus, he's going to help me get the recording contract, score a touchdown, hit a home run. He's going to help me get drafted by the team. He's going to help me get the girl, get the guy, get the promotion at work. But down deep inside, you know that you can do everything right and your marriage fall apart. You can do everything right with your kids and they will still walk away from you and God. You can do everything right at work and people will step over you on their way to promotion. (laughs) Your soul knows it, even if you're not willing to admit it. You attach yourself to any of that stuff, you will disintegrate, die in anxiety and depression will be the motto of the day. And anxiety, I discovered in my own life, is directly tied to anything you don't have that you think you can't live without or something that you do have that you're afraid of losing. Because your heart knows ultimately you're going to lose it all, but one thing. Jesus. Somewhere along the line, you actually start to believe that you know better than God how your life should be going. But your soul knows you're not in control of everything. And if it looks like you're not in control of everything, chances are high that you're not in control of everything. Somebody else is. <laughs> do, do you know, I read an article once that said good-looking people have a greater uh, chance of committing suicide. <laughs> I, I had to read the article. It's like, tongue, it's funny. And the idea is that if you're good-looking, you put all your significance and purpose in your looks. And everybody eventually loses. I'm living proof of what happens after you turn to 50. (laughs) I used to be good looking. I used to have hair and things were more up this way than that way. It's life. (laughs) But you know who's the worst at this? And this is how I want to end. Who's the worst at this? And this is where I move from honesty to transparency. Pastors. Oh, yeah. And we never will admit it. So we're busy telling you not to attach yourself to things that are fragile. And we're busy telling you to make sure your significance and hope is ultimately placed in Christ because everything will fade away. And you know what we do? We start building our own little kingdoms. And that's why in so many cases, the church goes south. Because I'm a firm believer that God's blessing has a lot to do with the motivation of your leaders. And I can tell you that for most of my life until the anxiety disorder, my significance was based on how big my church is. It's my father-in-law who reminded me, hey, it's not your church. Of how big the building is. Do people adore me? Do my peers respect me? And pastors are the worst at their identities being fragile because they put it in the approval of the people. 
And if you live your life that way, you will disintegrate from the inside out day after day after day until you take the mask off and you realize, man, I am a mess. Now here's where the rubber hits the road. If the Bible's true, and I, and I think we believe that it is, or we'd be wasting our time. The Bible says God's ultimate objective for you is that he would have supremacy in your life, that you would have other passions, and we do, it's okay. Some of you have passion for cars, some for golf, some for the Dodgers, because you're religious people. <laughs> and, and, you know, just let me stop here. I won't get to do this. And I just want to say something that they won the time that I was at the game. <laughs> and last night they won when I started watching because I couldn't start watching till the seventh inning because I was busy. And as soon as I started watching, that's all I'm saying, Anthony McMahon. <laughs> He's got tickets to game seven, so I'm just putting a little hint out there for him. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Here's the deal, though. If God wants our primary passion, it's okay to have other passions. But if he wants our primary passion to be him, because he loves us and he knows when our primary passion is him, man, that's the best life you could possibly live, your fulfillment. Then here's what God does. This is going to hurt you. But if God is truly like that, that means he's going to spend most of your life stripping away those other things until he gets first place. And he's not doing it because he hates you, doing it because he loves you. I am full on convinced that he sent, allowed, whatever you want to call it, the anxiety disorder into my life to wake me up to the reality that everything that my faith is ultimately in will one day be destroyed anyway. And the best part about the journey is that I don't care what you think about me. Yeah. I love you, but you're not my pseudo savior. Yeah. I only have one. And I know medicine can help. And I'm thankful but only Jesus can truly heal you of depression and anxiety. So what am I saying? Okay. All right. What am I saying? All right. So go back to the peewee baseball when they stick me out in right field and I'd collect four leaf clovers and I got bored. So I started staring at the sun and my mom told me not to do that, which was a direct license to do that. So I started staring at the sun and then I learned over the course of an entire peewee baseball season that if you stare at the sun for 20 seconds, close your eyes, these little dots bounce around and they're purple and blue and green and yellow and they're beautiful. They're just beautiful. <laughs> but then I was frustrated because I couldn't see them because they're bouncing everywhere and they're jumping. So over a long period of time, I learned that if you stare at the sun for 20 seconds, close your eyes and then stop trying to look at the dots, look at the fixed point in the background, something beyond. If you did that, then the little dots would stabilize and you could see them out of your peripheral vision, and they're beautiful, blue and green. I'm doing that now because I'm just staring at the light. So I got all, kind, all kinds of beautiful colors. This is your life, isn't it? It's your life. It's long, what do we say? Why do they call them selfies? Because they can't spell narcissism. <laughs> So if you, if you get your focus off yourself and put it on something bigger than you, which is God, then the interesting thing is the dots of your life will stabilize and you can see how beautiful your life really is. 
You know what's interesting about this? This is, this is the last phase I'm learning. I really do believe God wants to give us every good and perfect gift, but he's not an enabler. So I think he withholds until he's given supremacy, and then they start to flood in. And I think somebody famous said this, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. So your entire life, God's trying to get you to give him supremacy in your life. And when you do, I believe he opens the floodgates of heaven and gives you things that you never even knew you wanted, primarily peace. Do you know who got this right in the story? Leah. She's the only one who gets it. If you read the narrative, she starts praying out of her desperation because it's not working. Jacob's not working. She thought everything was going to be fine. It's not working. And she starts referring to God as Yahweh rather than Elohim, the more generic term. And she discovers that name through a personal relationship. And guess what she does? She decides she's going to have one more child. She named him Judah, which means praise. And in verse 35, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Look at the next line. Then she ceased bearing. She doesn't need kids anymore to prove that she matters. She found her meaning in God. She took the deepest, most passionate desires of her heart, took them away from her husband, and she put them on the Lord. And I'm telling you, when you do that, the anxiety and depression will fade away. Your soul will start to live again because it lives for the one thing you can never lose. What did Jim Elliot say? He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And when your soul knows you're living ultimately for that which lasts forever, it'll be healed. It'll be healed. Father, thank you for your love for us and for the power of a narrative that will open our eyes to who you truly are and how you can work in our lives. I I pray for everyone in the room suffering from depression and anxiety. I pray that in no way would I have belittled that. It's real. And I believe in the healing power of medicine and the gift that you've given to doctors. I also know that is abused so often. So I pray for wisdom and knowledge for those who are in this journey. But I also pray that you would remind us, ultimately only Jesus can bring the healing. We can mask it and we can deal with it, but only Jesus can free us up to live a life of peace that passes all understanding. No matter what's going on externally, we can have peace, peace of soul. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. That was his message about letting go of anxiety and attaching our soul to God and not the other things we seek after in our lives. To hear more messages from Pastor Jeff, simply head to vision.org.au and search for Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 